from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. All of a sudden, Rhode Island's 2022 campaign season looks very different. Congressman Jim Langevin's surprise retirement announcement has Democrats and Republicans lining up for a shot at the seat, and it's already shaken up the field of candidates for governor as well. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. And this week we are going to take a deep dive into all the developments politically with a political roundtable. I am joined by Target 12 investigator Steph Machano and our 12 News political analyst Joe Fleming. Well, 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 the first <laughs> political roundtable of 2023. One of many, I have a feeling. Um, so, Ted, I want to start with you and the uh, the second congressional district. Let's talk a lot about that off the top because that's obviously the bomb yeah. of the past few weeks. And I want to zoom out. You wrote in your column that Jim, Jim Langevin really kept his decision close to his vest. I mean, he kept it under wraps, even to his fellow Democrats. And I have to imagine they felt blindsided by it. Yeah, you know, I think obviously a lot of Democrats fond of Jim Langevin. They've worked with him for many years, but you certainly are hearing some frustration about the fact that such a major decision uh, took them all by surprise, including very much insiders in the party. You know, I think some people at home might assume, well, a lot of the, you know, the real higher ups, the mucky mucks really knew this was coming. That really wasn't the case. And I think that's why you're seeing such a scramble now uh, and frankly, such confusion and chaos, uh, especially in the early days around who is going to run for this seat because people hadn't put the pieces in place. People hadn't considered. Even look at uh, Seth Magaziner. First, we were hearing not going to not going to switch. Doesn't even live in the district. Then a few days later, suddenly the buzz starts. He might switch over and run for CD two, and then he does. Yeah, he does so yeah. um, I think there's the frustration among Democrats, especially in as we're going to talk about a ch potentially challenging electoral year that they kind of didn't have their ducks in a row to try to hold on to this seat. Could be an opportunity for Republicans. And then also there's been some talk that because they didn't know this was going to be an open seat, uh, Democrats might not have taken full advantage of redistricting and the fact that they could have maybe drawn the lines a little differently. Uh, and now while that process isn't totally finished, it certainly uh, is something that I think assembly leaders aren't sure they want to touch. You know, people hear you say that and go, wait, they can do that. And, <laughs> and yes, political gerrymandering is constitutional. You can right. do it. It might, you know, rub people the wrong way. But uh, as you point out, the lines are, they're not totally set, mm -hmm. but the first draft came out and maybe they would have wanted to go back to the 2010. Right. Ten years ago, the lines were drawn the other way to yeah. make the first district even more democratic to help David Cicilline. Well, let's talk about that because he touched on it. Um, this is a midterm election. Uh, you know, the conventional wisdom is nationally Republicans are right. going to do well. We have seen the second congressional district shift to the right. right. Could this be the year that uh, Rhode Island gets you know, uh, for the first time in over, what, 20 years? Uh, longer than that, Claudine Schneider was the last in uh, the Republican first, uh, in the second congressional district. She was in the second. Okay, right. could this happen again? It's a possibly, possible can happen if you have the right Republican running. You don't want to have a Republican that's ultra-conservative, I believe. While the district's more conservative, you need a more of a moderate Republican in that district, I think, to get some of those middle-of-the-road voters that can go either way, the independents. So, I mean, depending who the Republicans end up putting up as a nominee, could have a big effect on the general election. And what the primary looks like. I mean, we have seen Republican primaries pull that candidate to the right, and then they try right. to get back to the exactly. center. We've we, we seen that with Alan Fung when he ran for governor right. the first time. He has pulled to the right quite a bit. Then he had to try to move back to the center. And in a primary right now, you have two Republicans who have announced for Congress. The question is, will you get more Republicans announcing, and can they stay towards the middle to grab some of those independent-type Democratic votes? The district's 37% Democrat, 16% Republican only. General Treasurer uh, Steph, Seth, uh, Seth Magaziner, as Ted said, he announced. 
and he pointed out he doesn't even live in the second congressional right. district. He doesn't have to. I mean, you just have to live in the state. You have to be 25 years old, and you have to live in the state that you want to run. You asked him about that at his announcement. How, how is he framing that? How is he answering that question? Yeah, so we both defended the fact that he doesn't live in the district, pointing out, well, I'm only a mile away, and I've won the votes of the people in the second congressional districts in his treasurer's race, but also pledging to move to the district. What he wouldn't say is when he'll move to the district. Will he do it now? Will he only do it if he wins the primary or even wins the seat? Um, so we'll have to see how much that matters to voters that he doesn't live there. Um, certainly two of the other Democratic candidates, while they haven't, I think, directly criticized him, they have been heavily pointing out that they are oh, lifelong they residents <laughs> yeah. of the second congressional district. And so I'm sure it's going to become an issue, especially if he doesn't move anytime soon. Keep in mind, we've seen this before, Tim. Bob Wagan lived in the first congressional district when he ran for Congress in District 2. He, during the campaign, moved to the second congressional district, and it did not become an issue once he moved to the district. But it has been done before. And this is why we have you on the show, Joe, because <laughs> you remember <laughs> these Our types of things. <laughs> um, but so he's got to move before <laughs> the election, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to kind of weigh in on an analysis here, but you would have to think that again, while it's it's perfectly fine to do it from a legal perspective, the optics are voters want him in the district. You know, I admit, I tend to think voters, are, that could be a thing that is tangible to voters. Like, this person wants to represent you, they don't even live in the lines there. Um, you know, it is a personal decision for everyone. I mean, Seth Magsner, he has a, he's a baby. Um, you, you know, maybe he and his wife have a home. You know, moving, we all know, is a, is a personal decision for people. Um, but I think it's part, it's one of the reasons, I don't think, even though he's the only, he's, I would say, the highest profile candidate who's announced with the most name mm -hmm. recognition, people aren't necessarily saying he's going to run away with this. You now have, uh, actually, as of this morning, five Democrats, including Magaziner, have announced we'll for this seat. Them off yeah, so we can. have uh, we've talked about Magaziner, uh, former state representative Ed Pacheco. He was actually uh, he came out pretty quickly and said he was going to run. Uh, he's been out of office about a decade now. Uh, Joy Fox, who's a political strategist who formerly worked for Jim Langevin and worked for Gina Raimondo, she's in the race. Omar Ba, the founder of the Refugee Dream Center, and this morning Michael Neary, who says he's a lifelong Rhode Islander who worked for John Kasich, the Republican mm -hmm. uh, candidate. So you know now, as Joe and I were talking about earlier. Other than Magaziner, I would say the name recognition for most of those folks is very low. Mm -hmm. So they have a high bar to clear to become credible congressional candidates. But clearly, there are folks saying to themselves, well, I'm not sure that the treasurer is going to run away with this. I think there's an opportunity. Well, and also, you rattled off five, right? Yep. Um, so the more candidates there are, the candidate with the lower name recognition has a better shot, right, Joe? Because well, you don't need, right. you need a plurality or whatever it is. Right. You don't need to get above that 50 You need a lot mark. less votes. And the thing is, right now, these candidates have to start raising money because they have no money, most of them, and they have to start building an organization. The advantage Sent Magazine has is he's going to be able to get money very easily, and he already has an organization from when he was a governor, running for governor. The question is, how are the voters going to see this whole picture? Right now, people are not thinking about who they're going to vote for for Congress. They're thinking about inflation and COVID-19. That's the main factors mm -hmm. they're looking at right now. They're not looking at CD2 and really deciding at this point. So the other candidates have a chance to build organizations and get this race going. Republican Steph, uh, there are two announced, right? Mm -hmm. Remind everyone who's there. And then there's another name that could <laughs> uh, enter the race. Yeah, the yeah. So former state rep Bob Lancia, um, he ran last time and he was announced uh, well before Langevin's announcement. Um, and then State Senator Jessica De La Cruz announced uh, shortly after Langevin's announcement. They're both conservatives. 
Um, De La Cruz actually does not live in CD2. She lives in CD1, and I don't know if she's planning to move or mm. not. But uh, the Republican that everyone's waiting on mm. is former Cranston Mayor Alan Fung, uh, who's a more of a moderate and could really make a huge impact on this race if he does get in. Especially, you know, popular mayor of mm -hmm. Cranston, which is a very dense uh, voting area. And that's where the Democrats, you know, Cranston, Warwick in that little section of Providence, that's where the Democrats are probably going to put a lot of their energy, mm -hmm. and Alan Fung could disrupt that. Yeah, well, and half the voters, and you know, we talk about CD2 often, and people think of the uh, more rural areas of Rhode Island that are part of CD2, but of course, they're rural areas, there aren't as many voters there, they're not packed in as much. Almost half the voters are in Cranston, Providence, and Warwick um, mm. for CD2. So those are going to be, um, a, for both parties, important, important population centers to go after. And I think, you know, the question about Alan Fung, I think that's also a question on the Democrats. Democratic side. Could other prominent Democrats or Democrats uh, with deep pockets get into this race as they look at the field, look at if there's an opportunity there? I, do, I, do I think guess we should say we're taping this on a Friday. More candidates could announce <laughs> by could, Sunday yeah. when you're Coming watching this. So quickly, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't even know what could happen. So um, I think, you know, I, I just think I, it's, it's been so unstable, again, going back to the surprise of Jim Langevin's announcement, that I think that leaves a lot more room for um, surprises in a way we're not seeing in, for example, the governor's race, which has stayed pretty close to to what we were expecting since mm -hmm. basically last right. summer. And Fong getting in could indirectly affect other races because if independents who want to vote for him are selecting the Republican primary ballot mm -hmm. on primary day, that affects all the other races down the ballot too. So him getting in would be huge. And keep in mind, a Republican primary in CD2, maybe 20,000 voters. That's about it. Because mm -hmm. statewide, uh, four years ago, it was only 33,000 statewide. So here in CD2, you're probably going to maybe 20,000 voters out. And Alan Fung has a strong base in the city of Cranston. So it puts them in a strong position right away. Well, you're, so I wanted to talk about this. Um, you're bringing up a very important topic, which is voter turnout. This is a midterm election. There isn't a presidential candidate at the top of the ballot. Of course, we're talking, you know, the general right. election and not a primary. Um, but it's a gubernatorial year as well. And all of a sudden, there might be more interest uh, because there's a congressional race. But before the show, you pointed out something right. kind of interesting. Yeah, four year, two years ago in 2020, we had 517,000 people who voted, a record in Rhode Island. In the general. In the general election. Four years ago, it was 377,000. This year, right now, the primary is a key. And four years ago, it was 118,000 people voted in the Democratic primary, 33,000 in the Republican primary. The question is, how is voting going to be conducted this year? In 2020, we had a lot of mail ballots because you do not need witnesses on the ballots. And there was about 167,000 of those. Normally it's 18 to 20,000. And also we had the early voting. We had about 150,000 people who did the early type voting and 200,000 who voted on election day. So we don't know in the primary if you're gonna get a lot of these early voting. That's gonna have a big impact on this. So the turnout could go up, especially if you don't need signatures on the ballot, on the application for the um, mail ballots. That'll get, I think, get more people into vote. I'm also curious um, to see, I mean, you know, you've, you, the last couple of years have been, and not just COVID, have been so disruptive to politics. The Trump era, um, the amount of uh, enthusiasm, positive and negative, that Donald Trump brought out on both sides, which we know flowed all the way down to affecting governor's races and legislative races, and then the disruptions of COVID. You know, where are voters if this is a somewhat post-COVID, we hope, um, election, uh, you know, how much is, is Trump and kind of uh, the discussions around Donald Trump still a part of the conversation? Would that be a factor in a Republican primary of 20,000 voters, De La Cruz, Lancia, Fung, 20, and the Trump questions that we're going to ask in those interviews? Yeah, 20,000 voters is not a lot of people. And we've seen all across the country that um, loyalty to Donald Trump continues to be an important 
uh, proxy for some Republicans, but can be then a turnoff um, for some independents. On the other hand, we've also seen, look at the Virginia race, uh, where uh, Terry McAuliffe tried to make it about Donald Trump, and you saw a lot of voters say, well, you know what, Donald Trump's not in the White House anymore, and I care about these other issues. Yeah, so education, I just think we have there. a lot of uncertainty around where the voters' uh, thoughts are going to be as they head to the polls later on this mm -hmm. year, and that's going to affect all these campaigns. Well, naturally, Republicans are feeling kind of bullish right now, right? right? I bullish. mean, it, you know, with the COVID going on, inflation is right. is a, a problem right now that's facing the Biden administration. Uh, speaking of Biden, his poll numbers aren't great. Mm -hmm. Joe, does that translate to, you know, good signs for Republicans in Rhode Island? Well, I think what it translates to is simply that those people are now looking at the Republicans more than they have in the past. And in turn, they may decide to vote for them. Uh, Joe Biden, if he was a strong leader right now, I think would help the Democrats. But I think a lot of the Democrats around Rhode Island have to win it or lose it on their own. But I think what's going to happen is the, as Joe Biden's numbers stay low, people will start to look at Republicans. And that's a plus for Republicans in Rhode Island since there's so few of them. It may give them an opportunity to gain some more seats in the General Assembly and possibly help them in CD2, which is more Republican than the first district. Well, as we said, uh, Jim Langevin's surprise announcement didn't just affect things in the second congressional district. It absolutely shook up the governor's race. We're going to tackle that with this political roundtable coming up next on Newsmakers. Table joined by 12 News Politics editor Ted Nisi, Target 12 investigator Steph Machano, and 12 News political analyst Joe Fleming. As I said, I want to pivot to the governor's race, and I think we should remind everybody who is running uh, for governor in the Democratic primary. Here they are on the screen. Incumbent Governor Dan McKee. Now, he hasn't formally launched his campaign, but he's expected to run. Challenging McKee are former Secretary of State Matt Brown, former CBS executive Helena Folks, Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea, and Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz. This graphic uh, a couple of weeks ago had a sixth candidate, General Treasurer uh, Seth Magaziner, so we had to order a new one after he announced he's running for Congress. Um, but what is the impact here with um, Seth Magaziner stepping out of the, uh, the Democratic primary for Governor Steph? Who in your mind do you think benefits from that? You know, if I had to pick someone, I might say Nellie Gorbea, but I think it benefits all of them because anyone who perhaps at this point had already knew they were going to vote for a magaziner now has to pick another candidate. Mm -hmm. um, and it is too soon to know, you know, how, you know, who everyone's second choice was and how much support Seth had, but it's just winnowing it down. So now you have to get slightly more votes to win the primary than you did when it was a six-way race. Yeah, but still pretty packed, uh, five candidates. What do you think, Joe? Well, I think we, the first thing is we don't know how strong Seth Magaziner actually was in the governor's race. So we don't know how much support he had that was going to be spread around. I do agree with Steph that Nellie probably will benefit from it because she's liberal and so is, um, so is Steph and so is Matt Brown, so they may benefit. Dan McKee, you never know. I mean, some of the unions were going to support Seth, I think. We're not sure where they're going to go at this time. Maybe Dan McKee could grab some of that support. I think it depends on the union. Right, depending on which union. Obviously, yeah. there's some unions that won't, but there's other unions that might be open to Dan McKee. Right. So he may pick up a little bit, but I would say, you know, right now, you would lean towards Nelly getting some support. What do you think? I, you know, I do. I think it's hard to say, and I think Steph and Joe make good points. I mean, certainly it takes a bunch of money out of the Democratic primary because he was sitting on $1.6 million. And, you know, even if, as Joe says, we weren't sure how strong he was, spending that money could have hurt other right. candidates, you know, if he was on the yeah. attack or just getting more attention for himself. Um, I think for each of them, you know, raising the amount of votes you need to win this primary. Um, I do think, you know, Dan McKee, as you think about his approach, 
to this race, I think that geographic strength is kind of the base for Dan McKee, right? That Blackstone Valley, Northern Rhode Island, which he's always cultivated, where he's from as a mayor of Cumberland. And I think their hope is that if he can still stay really strong up there and then, you know, keep keep the score okay across the rest of the state, that could be enough base of support. And that's kind of the challenge for the other candidates is to find a base that's large enough to offset his strength up in the north and then build a coalition that can overcome that for the incumbent. You touched on uh, he was clearly the fundraising leader uh, in the in the governor's race. Does this open up more avenues to raise money for the other candidates or is it just there are so many races, there are so many candidates, there's a finite amount of money that it really doesn't benefit the other candidates too much financially? I, I don't see they're going to really benefit from him being out. I think with Helena Folks in the race, it was going to hurt Set Magazine with raising money because they probably would have been both going after the same sources. I think we want to see is the next campaign report that comes out on Helena Folks has $830,000 in the first time she's out there. How much more is she going to have in this next one? And if she may be the front f fundraising leader by the end of this next report, again, keep, one thing to keep in mind, her name recognition is very low. So she's going to have to spend a lot, a lot of that money early on to get herself known. But I don't see the other candidates benefiting too much from that money that's out of the race. Yeah, and of course, Governor McKee uh, doesn't have to spend a lot of money to get himself because he's got he's the bully on pulpit. TV every day. <laughs> we were just talking. We had a snowstorm last weekend. He was had multiple live news conferences on the air. The public state gets of to, the state. The state of the state address. He does COVID briefings. The public gets to see him on their television sets on a regular basis, online and everything. So he doesn't really need to go start actively campaigning uh, as early as these other candidates have to do. Yeah, and I think that's uh, to Joe's point, you know, so Helena Folks, her campaign, you know, Nellie Gorbea, I think her people kind of know how they think they need to win this race. They look back to her 2014 primary for Secretary of State where they were outspent and they felt like they had mm -hmm. to, you know, kind of do a guerrilla war <laughs> to, to win that race. They never expected to have the most resources. And I think they feel the same way now. They, they feel that underdog momentum, but they think that she can pull that together. Helena Folks is in a different position. She start to convert that money into votes. How soon does she start to air TV ads? You How know? soon, Joe? I think she's going to probably in the early spring start the TV ads because she has Rhode Island. Keep in mind, we're only talking about 120, 130,000 voters in the Democratic primary. So if she got like 40,000 votes, she's probably going to be in good shape to win it. So she has to get out there early before the other candidates get those votes away from her. So I don't think she's going to wait too long at all. You know, Eli Sherman uh, spent way too much time, did some homework, uh, <laughs> looking at the fourth quarter uh, numbers. I want to bring up a couple of graphics here, back to back, uh, if I could. Uh, and he really uh, dug into uh, some of the campaign finance reports. Again, fourth quarter, this is the last three months of 2021. Of the top three fundraising, uh, fundraisers in that time period, uh, Eli looked at out-of-state donations, Folks brought in 63% of donations from out of Rhode Island. For Gorbea, it was 40%. And then Governor McKee, just 26% were out-of-staters. And then uh, Eli looked at the max-out donation. Folks had 50% of max-out donations. And then it drops off. Governor McKee, 23%. And Gorbea, 20%. They made up their war chest of a, a, a lot more smaller donations. Ted, what does this uh, say about their base of support? Well, look, I think Helena, folks, why does she have a lot of money? She is, you know, she is a business executive. She is, I 
don't know if she stepped down at this point, but she was the leader of the Harvard University board. I mean, she just has a mm. lot of connections, and not just in Rhode Island, clearly by any means, all over the country. And that gives you a big financial Na base of you support. Reported Speaker Pelosi was one Nancy of her Pelosi, yeah, who's I believe her uh, Helena Folks' mother was college roommates right. with Nancy Pelosi. So that can bring a lot of money. Now, again, as always, we, you want to emphasize that money doesn't equal votes. I think of the Mike Bloomberg campaign yes. uh, for president. Mm. Mike Bloomberg had un, you know basically unlimited funding, right? But you, you, the voters have to buy what you're selling, right. and that's the challenge for the folks campaign. And again, it's not just talking to, it's specifically talking to Democratic primary voters. Do they want a business person? Do they want someone who hasn't been in politics? Um, and then, uh, you know, for Dan McKee, I think the question is going to be, it's more referendum on his leadership as governor, right? You know, I think, as Steph said, the flip side of an incumbent is every day they're making a judgment. Are you doing a good job? Are you decisive? Are you, uh, do I like your policies? Mm. And so um, that also raises the stakes for just governing um, for them. And then, you know, for Nellie Gorbea, knowing she's going to be outspent by probably both McKee and right. folks at the rate this is going, how does she find alternative ways to get out there and, and get a, a, a strong base of support among Democrats? And then, you know, we haven't talked about uh, Matt Brown and Luis Daniel Munoz. Munoz, he only has about $3,000 on hand. He's going to have to really show Democrats that he's a credible candidate I think to get support. But Matt Brown is kind of running his own race as a like true anti-establishment progressive and kind of testing how big a market is there for that in a Democratic primary. And that's something we don't necessarily know either. So I want to, we'll probably go back to the governor's race, but I'm, I'm afraid we'd run out of time and I wouldn't bring up the Providence mayoral race mm -hmm. uh, because that is another biggie. Yeah. Um, and again, we focus a lot on the primary for, for this one. Where, where does that one, how's that shaping up? Yeah, we only have a primary so far because no Republicans or independents have announced that they're running. So we've got four Democrats, uh, Brett Smiley, Michael Solomon, uh, Councilwoman Nirva LaFortune, and Gonzalo Cuervo. And Brett Smiley is far and away the biggest fundraiser so far. He has more than half a million dollars in his war chest, so sort of getting up to almost you know low gubernatorial race numbers there. Certainly, he'll keep he'll keep raising money this year. Um, he's followed by Michael Solomon, who's mostly self-funded, Gonzalo Cuervo, and then Councilwoman LaFortune has the least amount of money at 171,000. But I will say I ran the numbers. And she has the highest proportion of her donors living in Providence. Oh, wow. 60% of her donors living in Providence. Brett uh, has a lot more donors coming from outside of the city. And so uh, it's a really interesting race because both Brett and Councilwoman LaFortune live on the east side. She grew up on the south is side. It, is it about it's the east side when it comes to the Democratic primary? Yeah, for the east side is the largest proportion of voters, right? And yeah. so uh, Brett is certainly going to... And gonna, donors. We and saw donors it in, in, the, in the governor's uh, race of money. I, both, I believe it was... Uh, Gorbea and was it McKee? But anyway, most of the donations came from that zip code. Yeah, and Brett has a base of support on the east side. He's run before. He's basically been running for uh, many years now. <laughs> Maybe he didn't formally announce until until last year, but he's been running for a while. He's got a base of support, but Councilwoman LaFortune represents part of the east side, so it's she's going to get some votes there. Um, and Gonzalo Cuervo's made a play for the east side, saying, well, wait a minute, it's not just them, too, because they live there. I also am introducing myself to these people and, and hoping to get votes there. Um, so it's, you know, it's anyone's race. It's, it's certainly too soon to count anyone out in that race. You know, and going back to, we were talking about the max out donations I mentioned, you can give $1,000 in a calendar year. Right. Um, so be it the mayoral race, gubernatorial, CD2, whatever. All these campaigns are now going back to right. double dip, right? Because they, we or flipped triple, the because Brett started raising in 2020. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> exactly. And Helena, folks, half of her people maxed out. I would say those same people will be giving to her again this year. 
Um, oh, yes, uh, and uh, we have to talk about uh, the Republican gubernatorial race and who's uh, uh, running in that one. I mean, there was a, uh, Dave Darlington had dipped his toes yeah. in that, but no one has really formally they announced They don't yet. have, no, we have to. And we keep hearing whispers, oh, right. we, in we the wing. We talked about two, two announced candidates in CD2, and then Alan Fung, a big name who's strongly considering it. I've heard he's, he's talking to consultants right now. But on the Republican side, for the governor's race, we still don't have any announced candidates in the election year. For one thing, that means that, that nobody can raise, we were just talking about money, 2021 right. dollars are off the table now, um, so you can only raise in 2022 with the $1,000. Uh, Catherine Gregg at the Providence Journal had a story the other day that there, Ashley Kalis, right. who is a uh, businesswoman with a history in Illinois, new to Rhode Island, has been making some calls, has been doing some polling, and is thinking about that. And some have compared that to Don Kachiri, who came out of business and hadn't been a candidate before, but she does have a different background. Yeah, I think the thing, too, to keep in mind simply, I've been saying for a number of years, that's the type of candidate the Republicans need to run for governor. The difference is, though, Don Kachiri had a lot of ties to Rhode Island. You know, she does not have the ties to Rhode Island. But if she's going to get in this race, I think she needs to get in there very soon. And I think she could probably self-fund a lot of the race herself, based on what I read from Kathy Gregg's com column. But, again, you're running out of time. You've got to get in there at some point. And Don Kachiri, one thing people forget, he had a primary. He wasn't the endorsed Republican that year. That's right, Jim Bennett. He, Jim Bennett was the endorsed, and oh, he won yeah. that. And that primary, I think, helped Don Kachiri. And the Democrats had a nasty primary of Murph York and Sheldon Whitehouse. Yep. So, I mean, some ways, if she had a Republican primary, that might even help her. And that's the other thing to remember is in both these cases, you know, Democratic primaries are pretty hard fought often in Rhode Island because there's a lot at stake since Democrats have an edge in general elections. So do Democratic nominees come out wounded or stronger from these primaries, especially in the governor and CD2 races we're talking about? Well, Irish playwright Brendan Bean said there's no such thing as bad publicity except your own obituary. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe help All right, we are... Uh, out of time. Uh, a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about throughout 2022. I have a feeling all of you guys are going to be back uh, very soon. And catch Eli Sherman's campaign finance report on WPRI.com. I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.